Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts. Mark and AJ. I'm joining us on the phone now is a man who has been an award-winning sports media and sports business writer for the New York Times since 1991. He's the author or co-author of several books, including Bald Like Me, and I'm not talking about myself right now. You're um, not? Most recently, The Enlightened <laughs> Brachiologist, and its sequel, The Final Four of Everything. His latest, The Pride of the Yankees, Lou Gehrig, Gary Cooper, and the Making of a Classic, uses original scripts, letters, memos, and other rare documents to tell the behind-the-scenes story of how a classic was born. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome Richard Sandemir to WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Sorry for being late. I got extended at a dinner. No worries. Uh, it's so, happened so, so to you. Let's, let's say, we're going to start by saying we've come at this interview differently, Rich. Mark watched the movie. I read the book. So, so, yeah, okay. so, well, so we're going to go two different ways. So, you know, you look at your 27-year body of work as an author, which includes the four books we mentioned in the open, as well as Don't Worry, Stop Sweating, Use Deodorant, The Joy of Baldness, Men with Less Hair and Women Who Love Them, and Life for Real Dummies, Life for the Totally Clueless for Dummies series. And to borrow a line from that great songwriter Joe Raposo and singer Susan from Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. So what was the <laughs> genesis behind this project, and how did this process differ from your other books? Well, you know, Bald Like Me and Joy, Joy Baldness are the same thing. One was reissued uh, some years after the original Bald Like Me. Um, you know, the, some of them are just one-off humor books. Uh, Bald Like Me was from 1990, and it was uh, sort of self-therapy uh, published by a friend of mine who used to be bald, but then you got hair plugs. Um, so, um, you know, the books have, except for part of the Yankees, are pretty much an outgrowth of um, just I need to have fun or express myself. Uh, part of the Yankees, uh, while it's not a book that comes out of writing about sports media, it's, it's more, far more journalistic than anything I'd written before, and it had, it had developed out of an, an obsession with the movie and the luckiest man speech. So how long was the process? That guy was saying, I uh, think it, I want to write a book to actually get well, it. Well, there, there, there are two parts of the process. There is the eight or ten years that it took for me to noodle around and um, write a few proposals, get rejected a few times, change agents. Uh, and then once I got the, um, the contract, it took about a year and a half to do it. Part of the reason that it didn't take longer than that is that there's really nobody alive for the movie to talk to, so... For the most part, it was all archival research at the Motion Picture Library in Beverly Hills, at the Baseball Hall of Fame, and um, you know, online newspaper, digital newspaper archives. Um, I interviewed a few people: Gary Cooper's daughter, Maria Cooper Janis, um, and you know, a few other people just to get just to understand some technicalities uh, of, of movie making. But uh, for the most part, it's, it's really uh, telling a story based on scripts and letters and. Uh, you know, letters between Eleanor Gehrig and her agent uh, Christy Walsh, who played a role in the, who, who played a role behind the scenes role in, in, in the movie, were really quite essential. And um, Eleanor had given a lot of stuff to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and when they just laid it all on me, I said, "Well, here, here's what I was missing from all the other archival research." <laughs> 
You know, it's also interesting because we marvel at the, all the techno technological advances we have now and how quickly something goes from the news cycle into a movie. And back in the day, this moved fairly quickly. And you mentioned Walter Christie Walsh, who was considered to be basically the, the first sports agent. So what did he do that convinced you know, Samuel Golden? What was it that made Golden take on this project where other studios had passed on it? Well, it, 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 it took the intervention of his story editor, Niven Bush, who was one of the few people who knew baseball who worked for Goldwyn, uh, to get Goldwyn to say yes. Goldwyn was a Polish immigrant, uh, knew nothing about sports, baseball in particular. He thought they were, you know, six or eight bases, and he just, he just knew absolutely nothing. Gary Cooper never played baseball. The cinematographer didn't know anything about baseball. But Niven Bush knew baseball. He was a big fan. Uh, he was a scriptwriter, and by 1941, he was uh, a, a story editor for, for, for Goldwyn. And he had apparently tried, to some extent, to convince Goldwyn to do a movie, but Goldwyn said no. And then uh, Bush invited him to watch the newsreels of Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day from July 4th, uh, 41, July 4th 39, where, Gold, where Gehrig delivered the Luckiest Man speech. And that's the turning point. It's, it's that anecdote that I read in Scott Berg's biography of Goldwyn that said to me, i got to find out more about this in the making of this movie. So Bush invites, tells Goldwyn, please meet me in your screening room. And they run the, the newsreel. And you can imagine that there's a lot of pomp and ceremony to the newsreel. And uh, only at the end does Gary deliver the speech. But when the lights go up, uh, Goldwyn's crying. And because Goldwyn understood raw emotion, he was a very emotional man, and he loved things that could, movie stories that can make audiences cry. Then they roll it again, and he says, uh, get Mulvey on the phone. Mulvey is his number two guy, and, you know, make a deal with, with Ellen O'Garrick. Now, the other studios had not gone to those lengths. They, they were, they really were kind of lukewarm, but it was Goldwyn who finally saw it through uh, Bush's persuasion, and Bush, of course, went on to marry Teresa Wright shortly after the filming of the movie was made, and Teresa Wright, of course, played, played Ellen Gary. One of the points that becomes clear in the book, though, is the battle between doing a biography of a baseball player and Goldwyn trying to make anything other than a baseball movie. He wanted it to be a love story. So I want to talk about... Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it really... I don't think it was that hard. I think, you know, uh, because he was in charge he was not going to allow much baseball action in the movie. And his original screenwriter, uh, Paul Gallico, understood that from the beginning. Paul Gallico was the sports editor of the Daily News until a few years before uh, writing the script. He'd been a great columnist. He knew Gary. He knew Ruth. Uh, he went to Columbia uh, in overlapping years uh, uh, when, when, when Lou was there. So he understood all this. He understood, and he was kind of, kind of chagrined occasionally into his letters that, you know, Telling Eleanor, look, we got to do what the boss says we got to do. So, by my count, there are about 10 or 12 minutes of baseball action in there, and there is no baseball climax. There's no home run in the bottom of the ninth. I think Goldwyn wouldn't have understood any of that stuff. So, everybody was working to make it clear that they understood that Goldwyn didn't understand baseball. And, you know, if, 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 if Cooper were required to do more, to, be shown playing more baseball than he did, the movie I don't think would have held up as well. 
I think Baldwin's ignorance really made the movie what it was because it forced, it forced the screenwriters to write a, you know, kind of a Horatio Alger story of this, this kid, the son of poor immigrants, who kind of fights through the clutches of his mother, who was very overbearing and difficult, and finds the love of his life in this delightful personality that Teresa Wright portrayed as Eleanor. So it became a love story, and, you know, a standard baseball story, I think it would have been immediately forgettable. To me, except for the luckiest man speech, which is not a, it just happens to take place in the course, uh, you know, in, in a baseball stadium, was not a, um, was not a, a you know, a, really a baseball run. And the moments that I cry about besides the speech are when, you know, Eleanor is watching um, uh, Lou try to tie his tie on the way to Lou Gehrig Appreciation and he can't because the ALS, the one of the effects of ALS, he's losing his dexterity. Uh, you see that love there, and you, you, you punch it up with more baseball action, you would have lost that. The relationship that, what makes that movie work more than anything else is the relationship between uh, Teresa Wright and Gary Cooper. You know, you're going to make me, you brought up that, that scene. It's, it's very funny that you brought up that scene. So now I'm going to go out of order of my notes. Uh, so it's going to be a little. You're crown, totally throwing of, more. Off threw, threw me off. But so bear with me because this is, is a little long winded. But, you know, AJ is a little older than I am. I'm 57 years old. And I know that every person in my generation knows who Gary Cooper is. And I'm not really sure the, the same could be said about Teresa Wright, who's quite an uh -huh. actress. She's discovered by Samuel Golden. She receives a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance in this movie opposite Gary Cooper. And over the years, I'm not sure she has gotten the credit she deserves. So I watched the film again today prior to having you on. And two scenes that stood out for me for her. Um, and it was hardly a, a spoken word in either one of them for about a minute 45 seconds. One is where Lou was on deck and he was about to go up and then the, the third act was made and he walks back to the dugout and it's the, the scene where he's, he tells you know, to take out. When he walks towards her, she's smiling. When, uh -huh. she, when he walks past her, you, you sense that she knows something's up and her whole demeanor changes without yes. a spoken word, just in her facial expressions. The other scene that you mentioned to me, might be one of the best scenes in that movie whatsoever. It starts out with her sitting at her desk with the scrapbook, putting the Lou Gehrig Day article in the last page of the scrapbook, closing the scrapbook and feeling remorse, but she hears Gary Cooper whistling, Lou Gehrig whistling in the bathroom. Uh -huh. She walks yep. towards the bathroom and... Through a crack in the door, all you see is one of her eyes and half of her nose and her mouth. And you see the range of emotions as he's struggling. Uh -huh. And in order to change his mood, she goes and finds yarn and becomes the, the first spoken word after a minute and 35 seconds is get your popcorn and your peanuts here. And she's playing a vendor. Absolutely right. phenomenal. Does Teresa Wright get the credit she deserves for this movie some 70 years later where... I don't know if you walked up to someone in their 40s or 50s and say, who played, you know, who played opposite Gary Cooper, if anyone would even know. Well, yeah, I, I don't think she had the career that she expected to have. You know, she started off with like a house of fire. She got a Kevin Award nominations for This Is Miniver, Little Foxes, and Front Yankees. She was in uh, The Best Years of Our Lives in 46, 47. 
And, um, you know, she and her husband um, wanted a life on their own, and she, she didn't like being part of the studio system, and that, that really hurt her. She was suspended for a period of time by Goldwyn for, you know, claims about whether she was actually ill when she said she was ill. Um, it, was, it, wasn't that, it wasn't that great. And she, you know, in the 50s, she did TV, she did some movies, uh, she raised her kids, she got divorced, she got remarried. Um, and the last thing she did was, you, you, you have to help me with the film, it was, the, the, she played an, an old lady who, with Matt Damon in a Francis Ford Coppola movie of a John Grisham novel. And you'd have to look very closely to realize, yeah, that was Teresa Wright. And she was terrific. It was a small role. Um, but no, she, she was not the giant that Gary Cooper was. But, you know, at the end of the book, I'm very fond of, uh, of, of the story of how Teresa, within the last few years of her life, becomes a Yankee fan, a fanatical Yankee fan, so much so that if her family had an outing, they had to wait until after the Yankee game ended. Um, she loved Joe Torrey. She would call up her baseball friends and talk about the, the, night, the, the, the game the night before. Uh, she became crazed. And here's yet another part of the cast and crew that didn't know anything about baseball uh, when, when she made the movie. And maybe she got schooled a little bit more after when she got married to Niven Bush. But there was no reason for her to learn any more baseball because there was no there were no more baseball movies for her. So um, it, uh, it was a um, it's it's a nice little kind of coda to the story that she became a big fan. Yes. You know, one of the more difficult I think parts of the movie, and you talk about it in the book, is the relationship first of all between Lou Gehrig and his mother. The more importantly, mm-hmm. the relationship between Eleanor and her mother. Yeah. Right. So, why don't you talk a little bit about what real life was versus what ended up in the movie? Well, you know, the relationship between Eleanor and her mother-in-law was pretty toxic. But we have very little of the mother-in-law's viewpoint on this. So after Eleanor signed the contract, she sat down for a few weeks with Paul Gallico in San Francisco, and they went over, you know, her life and her relationship with Lou and everything she knew about Lou. And pretty much anything, every, anything negative about uh, Lou's mother came out of those conversations with Gallico. Now, those conversations uh, were, the descriptions of the relationship were much more toxic than what you saw in the movie. Because if, I think if you extended any more than what we've seen, that, than what we saw in the movie, the movie would have been, you know, changed uh, in, in bad ways. Uh, it was just a bad relationship. I would have liked to know what Mother Gary thought of, of Eleanor, whether she thought it was as bad as it was. Uh, but what we know comes from Illinois and also Illinois' mother, who wrote a, one particular letter that was helpful. So, um, you know, I think Illinois, I think Lou's mother was very, very protective of Lou. She lost a couple of kids uh, early on, and she, he was her shining star, and she was overprotective. She saw in him, you know, the perpetuation of the Gehrig name, and uh, she was going to be jealous of anybody who was going to take him away. And, you know, he, she, she took him away to a certain extent. And there were some very, very bitter things, far more in the letters uh, and her recollections to Gallico than you see in the movie. And there's, uh, I wrote about it in the book, there was some nasty stuff about who's to blame for Garrick's illness and whether, yeah. you know, uh, you know who Cooking. said who, yeah, the, the, the worst things. And okay. I was just... It was awful, but you, you can't imagine being in the movie. Yeah, Gallico, uh, Goldwyn would never have allowed it in there. 
uh, it just would have ruined the love story. So, you know, it was, um, uh, you know, when, when Eleanor sat down with Gallico, I have like a 38-page document of everything about Lou, and, you know, I kind of expected this stuff about, his, about her mother-in-law. What I didn't expect was her to talk about, you know, a two-week uh, bender that Lou went on in, um, uh, in the minor leagues or, you know, a, um, uh, you know, just his fear of women, his fear of being blackmailed, um, and, uh, and the fact that he occasionally had road rage. Um, so, you know, it's a very, very valuable document to have. We're talking with Richard Sandermeer, author of The Pride of the Yankees, Lou Gehrig, Gary Cooper, and the Making of a Classic. You know, you take a look at some actors who've done sports films over the years. Paul Newman, Taking to the Ice and Slapshot. Kevin Cosner, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams for Love of the Game. Billy D. Williams in Brian's Song. De Niro in Raging Bull and Bang the Drum Slowly. All of them had trainers. All of them a lot more athletic than Gary Cooper. Um, you mentioned before Lefty O'Doul. And, and what's so cool about this movie and this book is there were just so many tentacles. You mentioned, you know, Gallico. Gallico was really right. the first George Plimpton. He's a guy who went in mm -hmm. the ring and, and, and then... With then Dempsey. Right. And, and then you take a look at Lefty O'Doul, who was a, a tremendously successful uh, manager in the minor leagues, vital in the establishment of professional baseball in Japan. There's a bridge out by McCovey's Cove named after him. What did he have to teach Cooper in a six-week period? Well, he taught him whatever level of baseball we think Cooper exhibited in the movie is what Odell taught him. Uh, Cooper had no baseball experience, didn't play as a kid. He was much more of a horseman uh, than anything else. And he, he looked, he became a stunt rider before he was an actor, and he loved being on a horse, even though he, he had some permanent hip damage that made it sometimes hard to ride a horse. But by the time he was 40 years old, he hadn't played baseball, and... Um, you know, Duel was not, not only a great manager and, and he played a great role in Japanese baseball, but he was a terrific hitter. Right. Yeah. And um, he taught him everything he could. You know, he had to, you know, uh, Cooper was a righty. He had to turn him into a lefty in all ways. And uh, it was, I'm sure it was very, very difficult. But I think, you know, back in the 40s, there weren't people analyzing an actor yeah. for how well he played his sports. There weren't that many sports movies. Right. Nobody was analyzing the Marx Brothers for how they played football uh, in horse feathers. So, or, or the way they really wasn't. The horse, yeah. People would see the movie once or twice in the theater, and there, there was no secondary playing until the, until TV came along. Right. No, no one was going to be critical of what he was. Like. Plus, he was Gary Cooper. He was immensely popular. So he didn't have to unlearn any bad habits because he never played it. So he, he, he's not going to say, well, I swing the bat this way right-handed. So O'Doul taught him to hit um, left-handed using the uh, uh, the imagery of, of of how you hit a tree with an axe. So, you know, swing the axe this way towards the tree and swing the bat that way. And did he come out looking like, uh, hitting like Garrick? No. <laughs> did he come out, uh, there's very little in the movie where he actually connects bat to ball. Right. So you'd hear a sound, you'd see a cutaway before he actually hits the ball. You did see him hitting the ball in the arcade in Santa Monica uh, when he's wearing a suit. So, and the swing wasn't unnatural. The swing just wasn't very like he, he had a totally different body than Garrett, tall, lanky versus, you know, Garrett was muscles upon muscles. So, um, but for audience 1942, it was okay. And the whole, there's a whole urban myth about whether he failed so badly at becoming a lefty that all the, all the film negative was flipped. 
not true based on the film that we saw. Um, there may be outtakes that show that did flip it, but only when he was throwing the minor league sequences did, did it seem like he was actually flipped. Right, and that, and I, I hate yeah. the term, but but that fake news and that whole urban myth was perpetuated yeah. by Maury Povich's dad, Shirley Povich, who basically put it out in an article. He, yeah, he wasn't the only one. Right. You know, um, I don't know if he was on set. I don't know whether he had any, you know, primary knowledge of that. I don't think he did. Uh, but, you know, Garrett, and I mean, uh, uh, for himself, perpetuated some of that myth. Right. So, you know, it's, um, he was, he's, uh, Shirley Povich was not the only one, but it was a Hall of Fame researcher, Tom Schieber, who went through it frame by frame, and being an expert in the way uniforms are made and where the buttons are and where the plaques are, he said it would have taken far more work than they would have done in those days. Yeah, there's no I, I, I found that amazing. That. Somebody went, yeah, as you described in the book, it, it, frame by frame, and yeah. how things were stitched and how things went this. Yeah, and well, that's the it was absolutely well, it, amazing. It is amazing. If, if, if you know Tom's work as I do, you know that you know, to authenticate things, uh, you're a curate, senior curator at the Hall of Fame, you have to be able to, to authenticate uh, a uniform as the real thing. So he has to go, he has to compare the uniform to pictures of the time. And uh, most of all the uniforms he saw, if it were flipped, you would have seen the buttons in, a, in an opposite place. And there was no evidence that that, 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 that had happened. That's so cool. Now, I know from doing my Kiner's Corner book with Howie Carpin that the thrill of finding something that has not been shared with many about something you're so passionate about is the biggest rush in doing a book. So I can only imagine what your time at the Motion Picture Library in Beverly Hills, home to Samuel Golden Archive, was like. Walk us through the process of getting access, uh, what you found in the information, how you organize it, and what was the most exciting piece that you'd said, like, I, this is like the, the holy aha grail. moment. The holy grail. Yeah. Well, the, to, to the holy grail was that 38-page document yeah. between uh, uh, Eleanor Garrett's conversations with, um, uh, with Paul Gallico. It, it just explains so much. Uh, the process was that... Um, Years before, I had tried to get into the, the into the into the archive, um, but I didn't have a contract. So when I got a, so they wouldn't let me in without one. So when I got one in 2014, I guess it was, um, they let me in. They wanted my editor. They wanted to make sure I was legitimate. Uh, and once they did, uh, I had to. Uh, I was working with these lovely, wonderful, smart archivists, and I made a list before I went of everything that I could conceivably need. And once I got there, they had had a whole cart of, uh, uh, of envelopes, of, of these very wide uh, accordion envelopes uh, filled with, uh, you know, everything that could include the subject that I wanted and more because they said, well, if you want, if you, we know you wanted this, but, you know, you might want to look at that. Hmm. And I had to, and it's a very, very, it's a lovely library. Uh, you know, you, I was working in, I think it was the Catherine Hepburn reading room. I walked up the Michael Douglas, the Kirk Douglas <laughs> stairway from the Bob Hope lobby. Wow. And, um, you know, I would, they would hand me one envelope at a time, and I'd be, I'd be looking through them with white gloves. But these are, these are old, delicate documents. And I couldn't use a pen or a notepaper. Well, I could use a notepaper, but I'd have to have a pencil. Uh, but I used a laptop. I couldn't photograph anything. Uh, you know, I had to ask individually for each thing that I wanted copied. Um, the... Maybe the biggest surprise besides the Holy Grail was coming upon the file with all the sketches that Cooper did uh, in his spare time of the members of the cast. Uh, I guess I vaguely knew that he had been an artist, uh, and if he hadn't been an actor, he might have been a commercial artist. 
But he was a very good caricaturist. So I included two of those uh, in, in, in the book. Uh, but, you know, I was in that archive for two weeks on two separate trips. And um, they, if you look at my email traffic, you'll see all the, all the holy crap emails I'd write to my agent and my editor. Because it was like, you know, I got this, I got this, I got that. And, you know, everything I thought I, I hoped I would get, I got. There, I don't think there was anything um, besides outtakes. I, you know, nobody's just have outtakes. But besides that, the information that I wanted and more was there. And, you know, and then there was, uh, there were some Christy Walsh letters in there. Um, somebody who had uh, done a previous book had sent me um, some other Walsh letters, and there was a lot more stuff in the Hall of Fame. Once I said to one of the researchers there, I said, hey, do you have some Eleanor Garrick stuff? And they said, hold on a minute. And they're like, you know, <laughs> wow. like this email, you know, dump of marvelous things. And um, they also got some stuff from Eleanor Garrick's uh, uh, lawyer's daughter. The lawyer had died some years before, but she uh, preserved the, uh, the Eleanor Garrick file for me. And the contract for the movie was there. Um, among other things. So, you know, it, it was, um, um, I won't say it was easy, but it was uh, without spending a year interviewing 300 people, and I would have done it if, if the people were alive. Um, I, I, got, I know more about the movie than anybody alive because if anybody else knows about it, it's dead. It's amazing the, the access and the things you came across. And we try not to use the word email dump here on the show because uh, you know, right. it could get us in trouble with our president if we say something like that. But uh, uh, AJ and I actually. Email trove. The email <laughs> trove. Right, that's better. Um, AJ and I actually talked on, about this before we went on air. And uh, you know, baseball is what links fathers and sons for so many years. You watch a game on TV with your dad, he'd tell you stories of players from his era. And Garrick was one of those players. And whenever the movie was on PIX here in New York on a winter Sunday afternoon, Probably after watching right. the Bowery Boys, I can't with ever my dad. remember not watching it, you know, with, without commercials. commercials. Right. So you know, after the Bowery Boys are on, this would be on, and I'd sit there with my dad, and we watch it. And you know, I know this is probably sacrilegious to say, especially to you, because you love this film so much. But given the popularity of Forty Two five years ago, a film that generally got really good reviews, cost uh-huh. forty million to make, grossed ninety-seven million dollars. Do you think a remake of Pride of the Yankees could be successful, and you know how different it, would it be? be? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say nobody would make a remake, but right now they're making a, <laughs> a movie about Garrett's life based on Jonathan Haidt's biography. Okay. Um, I, you know, they did. You know, there, there, there was there was a uh, TV movie made in the in the fifties that was a very very bad remake of Pride of the Yankees. It wasn't called Pride of the Yankees, but. It, it touched on a lot of the same scenes and points, and it was just awful. Uh, you know, I hate movies that are, I hate remakes of movies that were really good in the first place. Like, I love The In Laws. Like, it's a great comedy. Okay. And then they remade it, and it wasn't so great. Uh, Serpentine. So, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why anybody would want to. I know that if they did, it would have to have an actor who plays baseball better than Cooper does. Uh, I, I would hope that they stand by the Goldwyn's belief that it was a love story. Um, I don't know how they would deal with Eleanor's character, because Eleanor was a tougher broad than Teresa Roth portrayed her to be. Uh, Eleanor, I, I believe, preferred Blake Danner's portrayal of her in the 1970s movie she started with uh, Edward Herman, uh, because she said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no sweetie. 
Uh, and she wasn't. You know, she was a card playing, she, you know, cigarette smoking broad who gambled a lot. And, um, and uh, she was clearly very in love with, 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 with Lou, but she wasn't the sweet thing that, uh, that, that Teresa was. So I, I think they have to make some choices about how realistic they want to be and how faithful they want to be to the original. Uh, but, you know, Cooper is so indelible in that role, I, I don't even know if I could see the movie. Uh, I like 42 a lot. I know there were a lot of factual errors in there, or factual liberties taken with truth, as almost all these kinds of movies are. Um, but, you know, as you get closer to contemporary times, it's easier to access the reality, the real records. And, you know, if you make a um, movie about a contemporary, uh, you know, increasingly contemporary athlete, you're going to have people who are checking out every little fact. And, um, you know, one of the things I've never understood is taking huge liberties Years ago, there was a Showtime biography of Rocky Marciano, and there was a scene in there where uh, Marciano goes to see Joe Lewis in a mental hospital in Denver, I think in 1970, and he gives him money. I think that's the gist of the scene. Uh, and it's true to the personalities of the two of them. Marciano loved Lewis and hated fighting him and hated beating him up, but that scene could not have happened because by 1970, Marciano was dead. <laughs> And when I asked the producer about it, he said, well, it could have happened. I said, well, yeah, it could have happened if you had dated it to 1968. Right. But it couldn't have happened because he was dead. He died in the plane crash the year before it happened. And it's like he couldn't understand why anybody would be critical of something, of portraying something that, that couldn't have happened. Uh-huh. Um, even, even if it was something Marciano, who was a tight mod, uh, might have done. I think I think I'd have seen a hand in the bag of money. Uh, because Joe had obviously come on to bad times. But I, 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 I really, and I, I, I've cited more than a few moments, uh, scenes in the, in the, in Front of the Yankees where the, um, the absolute letter of the truth was, was not followed. Um, but I think the essence of, of the relationship is there. They, they love each other. And while Teresa was not exactly like, uh, like Eleanor, uh, I, I think the essence of the movie is, is true. And, I, th- I think it's easier to make um, sports movies about fictional characters like Million Dollar Baby yeah, right. is, is easier to, to justify because you're, you're not going up against uh, the, right. the historical record. Richard, thanks so much right. for your time. We, we were also going to get into your new role, right. but uh, all I can I say is... I have a whole lot of questions about obit writing right. and... But all I can say... Is, you know, let's schedule another time pretty soon. I'm, absolutely, <laughs> and all I can say is about your new role is I hope you never get the opportunity to write about me or AJ. All right, oh, so we'll, we'll would love it. <laughs> I don't or my know. question, you, you, do you do advanced interviews? Right, right. I think it was the Times obit writer who interviewed I, people I, I, years I, ago. I, 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 all right. Mainly they're just, they're just the fresh dead. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll talk about that another day. So, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for a wonderful book. Thanks for allowing me to, to watch the movie again today. We really appreciate it. Uh, available everywhere. Uh, Pride of the Yankees. Thank you, guys. All right. Take thank care. you. Richard Sandemir, author of The Pride of the Yankees. Lou Gary, Gary Cooper in the making of a classic.